Hello. Welcome to Index for Continuance, a podcast of the CSU Poetry Center. I'm Zach Peckham. I'm here with Hilary Plum. Hi. And we are here to introduce this episode uh, that we recorded with Johannes Jurensen and Joel McSweeney of Action Books, um, a small press we're both really huge fans of, based in South Bend, Indiana. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Midwest, but also the Rust Belt, uh, as we get into in our conversation, um, which, you know, I won't spoil it all for you, but we cover some ideas about regionality and um, political aesthetics and affiliations and um, motives, fires, lights. <laughs> um, we don't have a lot of terms to uh, elucidate prior to this episode, but one came up that we thought was uh, maybe maybe worth it, which I encountered this phrase when I was reading uh, Johannes's book. Uh, it's a collection of essays from Noemi Press on just about uh, uh, translation, uh, some translation theory um, called Transgressive Circulation. It's a very cool book. I recommend it. But earlier, early on in the book, uh, one of the sort of, I think it's like the intro essay, really, where he kind of lays out some of the foundations uh, he uses this term minor literature, and when I first encountered it, I was I was interested in the way that he was using it, but uh, in the superficial way that it things usually strike me, I, I just noticed how, as a phrase, it seemed like analogous or a little maybe parallel to the phrase small press. And uh, I end up, I mentioned it to him in the episode. Uh, he helpfully puts a finer point on it by, you know, saying that he is actually using that term in relation to or in the spirit of uh, some much earlier and surprise, much more expansive um, pieces of, you know, theoretical, philosophical thinking about literature um, and not just uh, literary production in the way that we thinking about it, we think about it in publishing, but just having to do actually with writing itself. Uh, and this is uh, this this idea of minor literature comes from, I think, a pretty well-known essay um, by uh, French theorists uh, Deleuze and Guattari, whose names I may be butchering, and um, preemptively invite everyone to email us <laughs> to correct our pronunciation and also our understanding of these ideas. But we just felt... That um, in getting into this, you know, this is a podcast about small press and there's this phrase minor literature. Uh, it might just be helpful to sort of like, you know, disambiguate and, you know, just explain a tiny bit about what minor literature is or what it's meant to mean and uh, open up a possible direction for folks who might want to investigate that some more. Yeah. And when we were referring to this, um, to this book, I had the sad realization that I, I'm pretty sure I've read it. And can't tell you anything. Uh, <laughs> and then when I went to refresh myself, I found, you know, like myself looking through like some files for a book I had myself written in which, <laughs> for which I'd read the Deleuze and Guattari book. And I'd sort of forgot I'd written that book either. So just to say my forgetting also includes my own life. And cool. everything I care about. Um, <laughs> but uh, so this book is Kafka, Tour de Minor Literature. It came out in French in 75 and was translated into English in the 80s. You can find the whole thing on the internet as a PDF translated by Dana Poland. 
um, in the University of Minnesota's uh, series for theory and history of literature, you know, they're kind of nice series of a lot of important, particularly, I think, post-structuralist, like, texts in short editions. Um, there's people in the world, in <laughs> our lives, probably in the podcast world, who could, like, summarize the shit out of these uh, ideas. Oh, so well. They are not us, and nope. we are not them. If wouldn't, they're not you either, we're with you. Uh, <laughs> it would, wouldn't pretend to be, really. I mean, it just seems... How dare we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what we thought we could do is just give a few snippets from these ideas of minor literature, particularly because it, they seemed to, when we were looking, re-looking at them, in the case of some of us, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, they seem to, like, support and charge um, the, the, the beautiful depth of of the political that mm-hmm. Joyelle and Johannes bring to their work and that action exemplifies and that underlies um, their relationship to their work at action and their sense of the political potential of literature and the political potential of the small press. So it seemed nice to kind of just like glimpse or dip into moments in theory that were making the case for that political valence of of literature and literary work. Totally. Maybe mostly just to say, like, that we don't understand, (laughs) but are totally interested in. (laughs) And uh, if you are interested, here you go. Here's your door. Yeah. So some little quotes from this book from chapter three, which is helpfully titled, um, What is a Minor Literature? That's so actually so helpful. Yeah, it's nice. Um, a minor literature doesn't come from a minor language. It is rather that which a minority constructs within a major language. But the first characteristic of minor literature in any case is that in it language is affected with a high coefficient of deterritorialization. This is going to give you a little glimpse of Deleuze and Guattari's <laughs> style, which is not, you know, known for its sort of uh, snappiness or lucidity, yeah. right? It's uh, nice, nice it's syllables. theory, theory, yeah. <laughs> really nice syllables, though. Yeah. yeah. Okay, they go on to say, the second characteristic of minor literatures is that everything in them is political. Um, so the idea being that in the sort of major, a culture's major literature, it might be about the concerns of the individual as, as the concerns of the individual, but that's not possible in a minor literature. Like any concern of the indiv- individual is, is immediately connected to the political world. And they, a little sentence from them, you know, the family tri- triangle connects to other triangles, commercial, economic, bureaucratic, juridical, that determine its values. So everything is political. Um, and then the third characteristic is that in it, in minor literature, everything takes on a collective value. And that, I think, is an exciting space in, yeah. if you live in our culture, which has such an emphasis on the individual and on self-expression. So the idea of literature as a um, place where the, the collective is happening and being expressed. Um, and I'm just going to read a slightly longer quote um that i think is nice (laughs) so the political domain has contaminated every statement this is within minor literature right but above all else because collective or national consciousness is often inactive in external life and always in the process of breakdown literature finds itself positively charged with the role and function of collective and even revolutionary enunciation It is literature that produces an act of solidarity in spite of skepticism. 
And if the writer is in the margins or completely outside his or her fragile community, this situation allows the writer all the more the possibility to express another possible community and to forge the means for another consciousness and another sensibility. The literary machine thus becomes the relay for a revolutionary machine to come, not at all for ideological reasons, but because the literary machine alone is determined to fill the conditions of a collective enunciation that is lacking elsewhere in this milieu. Literature is the people's concern. <laughs> That's the end of the quote. And that seems like a nice... Literature is the people's concern. Seems like yeah. a nice note. <laughs> yeah. And this, um, you know, this, this interest in the, the possible as mm-hmm. um, something that's often, I feel like, rendered uh, as like a, an aesthetic quality, you know, but like is, you know, to the point that this these passages have been making, yeah, like deeply political, right? To sort of like, to imagine a future is a political project. Mm-hmm. How could it not be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I guess we're, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm becoming uh, emotional because we're all engaged in in that pretty i feel like pretty heavily right now um whether we want to be or not but yeah there's minor literature well let's we'll go to this really beautiful conversation i think with the heroes (laughs) joyelle and johannes a couple of my heroes so if i sound nervous (laughs) that's why (laughs) we're just here to share our vulnerability with you all what else is there really Hi, this is Hillary. I'm here with Zach Peckham. Hello. And we're talking today to Johannes Jurensen. Hi. And Joyelle McSweeney. <laughs> Hi there. Hello. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for chatting with us. Um, and we're here to talk about Action Books, uh, the press that you two run um, and founded together, if I have that right. That's right. Um, I thought I'd start at the beginning and just ask you about the founding of Action I think that Action started publishing books in 2005 or thereabouts. And Action's engagement with like histories and conceptions of the avant-garde, with the international, with feminism and the unruly and the uncanny is there right away. Um, and I was just today looking back at the first few seasons of books and noting that already like about half are in translation from Swedish and Finnish, Spanish, Korean. Um, I wondered if you could talk about what inspired you to start Action and how its list and structure kind of took shape. And maybe if anything stands out to you about kind of those early years, the, the challenges and joys of the early years of a press. The immediate or the first cause, I think, was I had translated a lot of poems by Osa Bay, a Swedish poet. And they were getting published in like online journals and small journals and people were getting really excited about them, emailing me, asking me for, for poems and so on. And I had put together a whole manuscript of like selected poems. And I thought for sure every press would want to publish them because people were so excited about them. They were, they were amazing poems and they're so different from anything, anything that was being published in the U.S. Um, it's kind of with this grotesquerie and sort of B-movie surrealism. And I found out that that was not true. Not every, like nobody was interested in publishing. Absolutely nobody was interested in publishing them. And then I started thinking about like why that was. And I started thinking about it, how few works in translation were being published. And especially things 
things that may be engaged with, you know, like uh, contemporary, especially contemporary poetry and poetry that was really different from U.S. poetry or what we expected from our from our translated poems. Um, and I was getting really down about it and and I whined a lot about it. And around the same time, Joelle and I uh, got together and Joelle just thought, well, we should do something about it. You should just, you should not just, just hang out and whine. So then we started. <laughs> and at the same time, you know, the other thing was we had, we knew a lot of U.S. poets who were kind of in conversation with some of these foreign poets like Osa and who also couldn't get their works published, like Laura Glennam, who had published a lot of stuff in journals, but nobody dared touch that manuscript. And so that was our two first books that we were like, well, because the other thing we decided was we see a lot of translation presses out there, or some, a few, not many, a few, but they're very much um, based on a model that that what they do is translation and that is something different from U.S. poetry. And we wanted to, while, while recognizing the validity and, uh, and the, of that, we wanted to have a press where the U.S. and the foreign intermingled and were in conversation. And so we've deli- very deliberately put Osa and Lara next to each other. You could see how this was a transnational kind of aesthetic going on. And so that's where it started. Yeah, that is where it started. And we were literally living in Tuscaloosa then, and our first set of proofs uh, were lost in Katrina. So I think that's a good, a good sort of signature for the stormborn element of action books. Thank you. I mean, uh, I was going to make an argument for just hanging out and whining, but but I think <laughs> well, like without whining, like what. I mean, yeah, what, what do we have, but also like, what will we have? <laughs> just feel like, I don't know. I feel like in our, our, you know, so far, like we haven't traveled super far with these conversations, just like we haven't done that many of them, but it is notable how like, that is such a like Genesis for so many of these projects, you know, of looking around and just being like, wait, what? Like, really? <laughs> like just feeling like incredulous. Um, and then, you know, that's usually followed by irritation and then, you know, um, oh, you're totally right. And that's a signature of so many of the classic, uh, now classic modernist manifestos as well. Like if you want to have a manifesto and launch a movement, you have to have some surface that you're kicking your feet off against when you take that huge leap and uh, like a smack in the face of public taste or whatever <laughs> it may be. So I think I think that idea that you have this general discomfort or dissatisfaction with what is going on around you or passing for literary culture and it prompts you, uh, it, it sparks you into action, then, you know, I feel like there's like a kind of a double energy in our press between this pretty contemporary focus. We do have a few like early 20th century books, but basically a contemporary focus and then like a modernist or, a you know, avant-garde as conceived in early modernism um, kind of energy and i think energy is the reason why this idea that you know you can just tumble forward um and by fall <laughs> and that pressure of being in motion and you will gather momentum and you will change the field that you're in i don't mean the professional field i mean like the field of physics like in the physics sense like you will change the fabric around you just by your forward motion action yeah, and the, we called it action books. Like, you know, Johannes and I have a, a, like a hilarious double instinct towards like, on the one hand, we like, 
we stay in the game. You know, like we're still here 20 years later. On the other hand, we make a lot of decisions very much on the fly. Um, I feel like Action Books, like pretty much was an almost instantaneous decision. Uh, basically, we just wanted a word that would like not even have to be translated. That could just be global English. Um, you know, that looks the same in a lot of languages and Action seemed to do it. And it definitely had that early modernist energy as well. Um, Johannes, what you said about publishing, you know, translations alongside U.S. poetry, um, just was thinking of some recent conversations with with translators, including I think Kate Hedin, who works um, at Action as well, who was just noting for her the power of being published at or working at a press where translations aren't separated out and sort of marked as this other kind of literature. I want to ask you about kind of the like the framing of the press um, and and. You know, action is both, I think, utterly distinct as a press and like distinct in its willingness to be distinct. Um, so, you know, I would say that the press has always made its politics and aesthetics really visible and articulated and like thick and specific. Um, and I feel like, and you all will have a chance to disagree, but I feel like, <laughs> I feel like your own work. <laughs> I, agree. I feel like a lot of like mainstream presses go out of their way to conceal or maybe have not even articulated to themselves that their like interest in neutrality or excellence or objectivity or representation as they define it is itself a politics. And we just always, that really ground our gears, so to speak. So, um, you know, we just, uh, or finest, don't get Johanna started on the, the category of the finest writing. Um. <laughs> I was thinking about that because I was remembering, I think some writing, Johanna's of yours online through the years about like literary organizations that would say like, we publish the best, we publish excellent writing, we publish the finest writing without anyone having to try to articulate like what that means to those editors or what values are behind that, which means that people, you know, that all of those values or ideologies are sort of like made invisible or covered over and there's this like bland kind of universal language and action has really not done, you know, has done the opposites of that, which I think of as being in really like in an active and like open dialogue with readers in order to say what you're trying to do. Yeah. So I, I was just curious to hear you, you two talk about that choice, like how you've approached that um, presentation of the press um, through the years and, and maybe the relationship between those choices and kind of concerns that exist in literary culture about like, quote unquote, professionalization, right, where things are kind of professionalized into states like the finest or, you know, they're, they're made less specific in order to be a little bit more assimilable or kind of work for the broadest audience. I think that, I mean, we were always very much aware of that, the illusion of, I mean, meritocracy is an illusion that demands that people say things like we, we, we published, a, we don't have a taste, we publish everything, every kind of, <laughs> but the finest of each, just like drives me crazy, because I see, I, you know, I see it a lot, uh, what that means, and usually it means um, things are watered down a lot. So yeah, we were always, that's what we always wanted to be sure that we were not publishing the finest. We were not interested in the finest. We were interested in, a, we were interested in having a taste Though we also wanted the taste to be something that was open to const to, to influx, to fluxes, to changes. Now, I think one thing, for example, about like, at that time, like experimentalism 
became more kind of orthodox and it seemed like we didn't want to be like experimentalists. We didn't want that kind of orthodoxy. We wanted to be, to be, we wanted to have a certain amount of flux and vulnerability to foreign influences. Um, but at the same time we wanted to have, and that we wanted to have, we wanted to mark out what we were interested in and that might change over time, but we were, we were part of reading these part of publishing. This was part of a conversation, part of, and as part of that conversation or whatever transformation, deformation was our ideas changed and our aesthetics changed. But I know that whenever I, I, I used to be on a lot of panels, like in around 2009 or whatever, and people, when people heard me say that, that you, you should, I'd be like, man, you should, you have a taste and you, you should, you should acknowledge it. This is really a sticking point for a lot of people. Uh, they're like, well, that's so close-minded. You've become so narrow. And I'm like, well, how many people have you published that's not from the U.S.? And like, none. And I was like, well, no, 75% of my people are not from the U.S. How come I'm the narrow-minded one? Um, but that's always the, it's like, I, there is a point there. You don't want to become like you reproduce the same book over and over again. But at the same time, you don't want to hide your aesthetic interests. In addition to the, the interest in translation and, maybe more importantly, the, the interest in not <laughs> just like acknowledging that these are like, this is all literature, <laughs> you know, like translation is not a different thing. It's, I mean, it, it has differences or there are different ideas about it, but like that, you know, in addition, in addition to the, maybe like the objective or priority of putting literature written in English in not like even alongside, just in the same exact mix as work in translation. Um, and being able to point to that, like you have as an aesthetic choice, like an aesthetic priority, like what are some of the other, it just in, in your mind, like aesthetic priorities of action and the work that you want to publish? Like what are those, those qualities? Well, I think that at the beginning of things, um, once we hung out our flag with Osa and Lara, you know, some translators started coming to us and others uh, we just dis discovered. Like, um, I believe I saw two poems of Kim Soon translated by Damite in Circumference. And I was like, I must find more. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, it, the aesthetic, as it were, kind of developed as a polity of like us reaching out and, you know, going in a needle in a haystack on different message boards to find Dom versus um, translators who recognize the kind of energy and fire in what we we're publishing and coming to us. So I would say that, yes, you know, translation and, um, and works first written in English together is a priority. Um, being translation focused means being like translator focused, which means uh, making room for the artistry of translators like to all around the work, um, also forwarding their own, like if they also make poetry or artwork, like to have all that artistry be present and being kind of activist in that way. I would also think that to go, this kind of fits with your previous question, you know, to make room in Anglophone readerships and really American readerships for folks like uh, Kimisun, Raul Zurita, Hiromi Ito or Osa, people who do not separate, think that there's a separation between aesthetics and politics, means that you have to get your description of what, like how you describe art and literature to yourself bigger than how it's taught in most American schools, or it was in our generation anyway, which is like just straight up from the Norton anthology, form after form, genius after genius. And 
you know, that, that is, that's a thrill. That's a specific thrill of its own. Um, but I, I think that that kind of cut, that wasn't going to cut it as a way to think about, well, why does Kimisun make this work of like grotesquerie, but domesticity, uh, but feminist, but injury, but like resiliency, like how are those like things forming this work and what is, what are the politics and the recent histories and the old and the deeper histories that are film forming them or like, Zorita, like this Dante-esque self-figuring. Um, and he has said in interviews, you know, we have to create work that has the, the force of the forces that oppress us. Like we have to create work that has the force of a coup. Um, that is just a lot of Americans um, would be like, our poets would be like allergic to that idea that we're going to like claim that kind of forcefulness and like reach to Dante as a way to um, literally press back against like a military coup. Um, that that set that conglomeration of ideas. So our description of literature, just how we describe it to ourselves as writers, had to be bigger, and the way we describe the press had to be bigger and have more room. So I think that idea of just like getting conceptually bigger, letting the politics and the aesthetics form this kind of dynamo that, for a lot of American scholars and poets, is something we like vaguely locate in the avant-garde period and then like dismiss. Um, let's go back to it and let anachronism also be a kind of engine. Also, we said our first description of, of the press's aesthetic was poetry that goes too far because we recognize that in all poetry discussion, like from the workshop to journals, whenever somebody was doing something we thought was interesting, the people people would say, that's a little too, like, that's too clever, that's too funny, that's too gross. And we're like, no, we want, we want the poetry that goes too far. Um, and we also always love that Blaise Sandrar's poem, of the trans prose of the Trans Siberian, where he says he, he was he was still a shitty poet because he hadn't learned how to go all the way. <laughs> yeah, the girl he's traveling with keeps saying, "Are we going to go all the way, Blaze?" And yeah, <laughs> catchphrase, if I may be so bold to say that we use around the house sometimes to try to stoke ourselves up to keep going in our own work and with action. Like, what are we going to go all the way, Blaze? But we have to take turns being Blaze, obviously. <laughs> We can't all be Blaze, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. we all got to Blaze. <laughs> I like that. Um, I, I feel interested in like the way you were you were phrasing like qualities uh, qualities that are like it like rather than being like this and this and this and this this but this but this but this feels like it's a little more like nonlinear, you know, because like everything can't be everything, <laughs> you know. So to say that like it it's this but this but this but this feels more I don't know uh, somehow more limited, but also like more capacious right like more like open to that like the idea that it could go too far you know and it, and and good you know um rather than to say that that's something that should be controlled a little more right or uh, made into the finest that's good um but i like that i like how this i don't know i'm just i'm interested in that uh it feels like that's one like structure one like syntax of that thought and then all but but that also um, that sort of limitedness or a sense of maybe that there, there there's a limit that can be reached and can then be surpassed uh, is also a source of, you just said, uh, like energy and like continuance, right? I mean, like one of our sort of main questions for this podcast is like, how do people keep going, <laughs> you know, um, in like both like practical and, you know, less literal ways. Um, and that uh, I'm just... I, I, I'm just making connections, but I'm excited about 
this this idea that like there is there's a source of continuance in that kind of like extremity and that um i mean i'm not a very hopeful person but it sort of seems to suggest to me that like then well i'm often so pessimistic but like well it's it's apparently inexhaustible right this is like one source of energy that seems infinitely if not renewable like just available (laughs) i think think it's true i think it's true and what's funny is for all of my like just dissing on like the way Anglo-American poetry narrates itself is like, you can reach right into Blake, you know, um, <laughs> reach right into Blake. And he's got, he's got those energy, those dynamos for you about, you know, energy and, and sweet delight and all that, that can just like the fire that keeps burning. To sort of like build on this, I want to, I want to talk about like some of those ideas, some of those, like, like the spirit of those, <laughs> of those like aesthetics and how they kind of, find their way into like the work that you both do individually and collaboratively. And then maybe how uh, it might find its way into your thinking about like um, region. Right. And then like space more abstractly. So like, I mean, I think of you both as, I mean, poets, of course. Right. But you're also critics and theorists. Um, You know, in addition to your own collections of poetry, you've produced works of criticism. Right. And this is in the form of, you know, reviews like book reviews, um, essays, um, you know, that get published on their own and then, you know, whole titles, like whole books of, of theory on like poetics, translation, media, publishing, uh, contemporary U.S. and global literary culture, which you both have a bunch of books, but like I'll just cite a couple. Right. So Joyelle, you know, the Necropastoral, of course, right. Poetry, media, occults from University of Michigan. Johannes, uh, Transgressive Circulation, Essays on Translation um, from Noemi Press. And then collaboratively, there's that uh, shorter book from Ugly Duckling, The Deformation Zone. Something that struck me when I was looking at, I mean, I've looked at all these books at different points, but I was kind of looking at them all together. And like, I just realized like there's this language of space that's being used um, sort of in the exploration of like, of all these ideas, right? The necropastoral, right? Uh, to quote the the essay that's on the, the Harriet blog, right? It's a it's an it's a political aesthetic zone. Um, the deformation zone is the space that transgressive circulation explores, or at least does in part. And to <laughs> to like not to like ignore the specifics of these ideas, right? Um, but I want to ask in like a more general way, if like this this kind of like I don't know if it's spatial thinking, but thinking about space, right, um, absorbs your thoughts um, and feelings about just like the region that you're in, right? Like the Midwestern United States. Midwesternness is uh, usually kind of shorthand, right, for certain like very mainstream, what I would describe as like mainstream or maybe uh, palatable, right, supposedly, calm, even keeled, not inoffensive cultural values. Um, But it's also for sure like, I mean, I feel like a like a, a necropastoral site. Uh, it's it's a kind of deformation zone. So you know, we're interested in publishing. We're interested in the specifics of these ideas, but like, just in like this total deflation of <laughs> of your work. Like, how do you think about like Indiana in the Midwest um, in your work and in the things that you continue to endeavor to do? And how do you think it? it might inform your thinking about small press culture or like tra- a, a transgressive literary aesthetic. Wow. That's a big question. You should go first with this. 
Well, I would say to, I have to break your question down in a couple different ways. Like one thing with the necropastoral and this idea of like a kind of writing that's like eco-responsive, um, but is thinking in terms of definitely not charismatic megafauna, you know, thinking about rust and lead poisoning and um, the air quality and, and flora and fauna of decay, um, which has brought me back to rereading things like, like Maldor or like works of global decadence and Latin American decadence. Like, I don't think I would have made that move to thinking about like a, to prioritizing kind of a global decadence and thinking about decadence and decay and how they're linked and, and, and sort of like an eco theory of decadence if I weren't living here in the Rust Belt. Like, I just don't, I was very aware of environmental pressures when we were living in Tuscaloosa, of course, Katrina happened. And that was the beginning, I think, of like my radicalization, um, both politically and in terms of ecological thinking. But I think that for the detail, um, the fine grainness of the necropastoral, I think that I had to write that here. So to, to sort of step back from that then and think about like, well, we run a translation press from a pretty obscure place by most people's measures. Uh, most people could not necessarily find Indiana on a map or, or understand that our part of Indiana is like a post-industrial place, not like cornfields or soybean fields or whatever is going on further south of here. Like we were in the Rust Belt on, um, with Cleveland. So um I think that this idea of the provincial versus the cosmopolitan and these kind of models, they come up a lot in translation. The idea that it's better to be cosmopolitan, overcome the provincial. But I think uh, describing the world from uh, um, the, the position of the province creates this like radical sightline that touches everything um, from a very radical info-shortened place. And um, and so I think that there's power in that. And yeah, I get I kind of get excited about it when I think about like we're publishing all this wild, really important um, work from all over the globe that's radical, both formally and politically. And we're doing it from this like place that really could not be described as anything but provincial. Um, I love the power and the reversal of that. And since I am an orthodox modernist, I love reversal as, <laughs> as an aesthetic and a political technique. So yeah, so that part's exciting to me. But then again, I am myself not from Sweden, so I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I agree. I, I mean, we talk a lot about this, and I think that the centers of American literature are incredibly provincial, like, and they have the power to be truly provincial because they they are, uh, you know, funded and and empowered by hege hegemony and money and military might. I mean, these things are not isolated. Um, so they can be dangerously provincial. Hmm. And I think that maybe Midwest is known for a kind of blandness, proud blandness, but everywhere. I think one thing that I love about the U.S. is the way like weirdos come out of the, come out everywhere. I mean, America, <laughs> the U.S. is a country that produces weirdos that are in opposition to that kind of blandness, um, often from other, you know, from the wrong class from the wrong part of town or whatever. I mean, the other thing about space for me is that, and like, this is a really uncool part of our, um, maybe it's, maybe it's all uncool, but this is really uncool. And that is <laughs> I, my whole life. I've had a lot of homesickness. Like ever since I was, came to the U S I've been homesickness has been this really strong emotions. So it's almost like I always have like, my identity, I feel like maybe my identity opens up to, 
uh, to some kind of these kind of maybe transnational flows just because I'm out of place. I'm not one of these people who are really good travelers or like super nomads who show up, move someplace else. They're really cool. They learn everything. I'm like, no, like for 30 years, I've been really sad <laughs> that I, that I, that I'm not at home anymore and I, that I can never go back home. So and that's another, that's, that's a sort of sentimental aspect of, of, of that spatial aesthetics. I think that you're talking about. Hmm. I like that cool and uncool is back again for us. This is another sort of like thing we're always like tangling with, right? Because there's, there's a point at which being cool is actually very uncool. And I think all of this is very uncool, which is yeah. actually what is so cool about it. That's yeah. That I, I love that. That's um, that idea of being, I mean, I don't know, right? Like I don't want to be like a super literalist, but like there is to me, I, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the Rust Belt, right? Like I, I moved out here like five years ago to do the MFA at Cleveland State, which at the time all of my friends in Massachusetts were like, are you fucking crazy? <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, but now, like, I, I don't think I could have like, I mean, I'm, I, whatever, I would have survived, but like, I just, I wouldn't have been able to do the things that are possible here and like certainly not be a weirdo, you know, in the ways that, um, have come to be like, actually like very fortifying and ultimately like essential, I think. Um, so I think that, you know, not to be too like literal, but I think that there, like, there is something to that thought, right? Like to that idea of like getting, um, like maybe one has to be a little outside, right. A little outside of, especially of like the centers of, or the, you know, supposed centers, the con conventional centers of culture or production or whatever to, um, to do certain things, not just, uh, practically, but maybe like more, I don't know, more theoretically, right. To like really be able to do it or unlock it or find the energy for it. Probably, I feel like prevent provincial places or the provinces are more volatile spaces. Mm. Sometimes just because they're small, like, you know, like, um, just smaller or there's just like less of a hold of this literary establishment. I'm thinking of some place like the Finland, Swedish modernists in the 1920s, the most incredibly radical modernist Dadaists. And they were, you know, there's like five of them and they're in Helsinki, you know, and Edith Sotogon isn't even in Helsinki. She's out in the countryside, but partly because of that, is why they were, I think, were able to like take on all these radical movements from all over the world and just like, yeah, go all the way. Um, and then, you know, like selling whatever, 30 copies of their books. But now they, sh they, in retrospect, like ending up shaping Swedish poetry, for example. I feel tempted to, <laughs> to ask you guys like to help me with a thought <laughs> that's related to, <laughs> to this question of region. Um, and to some of the like big thoughts in, in Zach's question, which is I, I keep like having this like note pile, probably just in my head and not even on a piece of paper about like looking for looking ahead, not forward um, in like publishing in red states, like having a feeling now of, of the changing legal landscape um, that were, you know, since Roe fell with like these waves of anti LGBTQ legislation and with Ohio's super Ohio's in this like super gerrymandered constitutional <laughs> crisis state that's just ongoing. Um, 
so, you know, a feeling of like being in a very right wing uh, administrative situation and not sure how that will um, manifest in the day to day or how it might already be, you know, already be manifesting. That's not quite that I can't quite articulate yet. And I was thinking, you know, when I think about like, okay, publishing, you know, I think about what I would picture of it is something like what action is doing, which is that the sort of those pressures, you know, create this like extraordinary energy and, and innovation deformation that I feel like flows from the press. Um, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious if there are ways, whether it's in the like, the teaching of the press or the ways, you know, the hosting of events or ways that presses are nodes through which, you know, writers and translators and readers and audience meet each other. There are ways that you find yourself thinking about the, um, like political situation of, of Indiana. And, Johannes, to your point, I was feeling like the provinciality of, um, you know, big five or other forms of literature that are coming out of very different content, like doesn't feel like it works in the same way. You know what I mean? Like some very New York novel, like, I feel like they don't work. They don't work here. (laughs) Like they don't, you can't like read them from Cleveland in the same way or something. And maybe that's just me and my like allergies. Um, But like, yeah, I, I just was, yeah, I'm curious if you find yourself, have found yourselves thinking throughout these years or looking kind of ahead in the sort of, pretty politically volatile situation that we're in of, of that um, red stateness. Um. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that it, it's interesting because obviously there are very like, I, I, I did not have the end of your sentence for you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like material differences between living in like a firmly red state versus a firmly blue state. Um, nobody would mistake Indiana for Massachusetts, but there's fascists everywhere and there's fascist school boards and, town leaders and state senate presidents everywhere and that's what we learn like i mean on the one hand like it was a lot more fun to live in indiana before trump but on the other hand everywhere is trump now like i'm sure everywhere and like is pennsylvania a blue state well it went blue but you know my parents live in pennsylvania so i keep an eye on like what's going on there and you know there's plenty of red state energy in pennsylvania and new york state so i mean where is the red state where is the blue state obviously when we're talking about like actual laws about what can be taught and what's in the library yes those are like very material and when we're talking about like just the ethos or like what that category means i think it's like hazier because on the ground you do run into these gerrymandering issues or you know, Indiana's thought of as a very white state, but then city by city, there's different labor histories and it's maybe not such a white state. So I guess the local is always the strange connection between the local and the planetary that has been in place since like the beginning of ecological thinking, at least among, among um, it's, it's probably the way to think here as well. But I agree with you that there's a feeling of being quite boxed in, or maybe that's not what you said, but. I have a sense of being quite boxed in sometimes. It's true. Mm. And it's very um, in one's face in Indiana because of the special right to lifey feeling of Indiana, which is like a, a step, a special flavor of the fascism here. <laughs> Hillary, do you mean that it has an effect on the, on our aesthetics or like? I guess that's sort of what I'm wondering about if it has felt that way or if it, um, I sometimes feel like 
I'll end up writing or publishing or thinking different things here than I would if I were, you know, even living in the like the post-industrial city of Holyoke, Massachusetts, this is a different context. Um, so yeah, I guess that's what I was, I don't think it's a question I could answer if someone <laughs> asked no, me. It's a, it's a good question though. Um, you, you know, you can imagine somebody coming up with an essay which had a really like with a reductive kind of influence kind of model, but yeah, how did it really affect us? I don't, know. I don't think we have an answer to that. Yeah. Guy. <laughs> I, think, I think there's a feeling of yeah of pressure and vulnerability that. Mm-hmm was probably very present in our own writing and in the choices that we have to make around our kids and their schooling and their upbringing and all that, very much so. I think in terms of how it, the impact on the publishing venture, maybe not so much because that, that, that train is, that train has long since left the station. And sometimes I feel like our action books might be like something that we come equipped with to deal with it in some Mm -hmm. You know, That's like true. it's strong, it's strong medicine for, you know, for, for tough times. Mm. And I guess that was my, my first hypothesis was that you'd already answered my question because I thought of action as an answer yeah. to whatever it was that I've been sinking into or trying to figure out how, um, how best to have a place called the Cleveland State University Poetry Center serve Cleveland <laughs> in, in years ahead. I feel like the, um, the feeling of like whatever post-Trump Indiana is super embattled, full of anger and violence and conflict. And so if I can just put it, put it like that, then I would be very hard for me to like, like a certain kind of fine poetry in that situation. (laughs) Because I didn't like that already, so I don't know if it, if it would have changed me if I if I like used to like it. Maybe now I wouldn't like it, or maybe this would be a retreat into a fun. That's probably the way it is for a lot of people: a retreat into some calm place. You know, it's it's really interesting because I feel um, I probably sh- share a lot of those same emotions of you're feeling like a little boxed in or a little confronted or by you know certain certain politics, certain ideas, certain language all the time. And, you know, I, I find it almost impossible to, um, like personally reckon with or, or like meet, you know, in my, in my daily life. And yet I know for myself, like I've, I've, I find myself drawn to like literature that does that. And that does that in like, not just like a content way, but in some kind of like sometimes, um, really intense aesthetic manner. And I don't know, I'm just realizing that now. Cause I like, I'm like, I don't know. I feel like I live my whole life in avoidance of confrontation. And yet um, I'm often thinking about the role of confrontation or provocation or meeting certain things in almost on like more aesthetic terms. And this, this actually feels like a better or like more worthwhile use of my, of like my, my time, or maybe I just feel better at it. So like, I mean, I'm not going to get probably punched in the face for writing a stupid poem Four people are going to read, but I guess that'd be cool. Um, But it makes me think about like, you know, one question that we um, I think explore in different ways is, um, you know, just the ways that people who run presses, people who uh, publish with, uh, you know, small presses, independent presses, 
whether you work on them or publish with them or whatever, uh, like, how do you think about like antagonism in that, uh, in that work? You know, um, I know that like the sort of the founding of action press or action books, again, the founding of the press may be pre answers the question, but like, I'm just curious in like both of your own work, right? Like, how do you think about like confrontation and provocation? And then I, I wonder, like, I have this, I guess, you know, it's not like a hypothesis, but it's like a, an idea toward one that like, whether there is something, there's some necessary degree of um, confrontation in like a, a, a small press pursuit, <laughs> you know, like is, do you feel that that is necessary? I think people can tell that story and, and set up their like press values and mission and aesthetics and, you know, the, the like, community they're trying to build, like however suits them in the world, for sure. If people want to be really like um, disarming, not disarming like we're disarming, but to disarm, to lay <laughs> one's arms down and, you know, come to, you know, an all, an all collaborative press, a hyper-local press, like any number of things that you could do where the aesthetics, the politics and the mission would all reflect each other. And that would be like 100% valid. I mean, I think for us, but even that, I guess, would be a set of choices and a set of refusals, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I think for us, there's this idea of this modernist dynamo of like conflict and, but also like that a lot of the folks that, you know, wrote those early manifestos were themselves refugees, um, are Jewish folks who like left super or places where they and their family were very vulnerable and went to the city, uh, different stories like that, like refugees. The fact that like out of turbulence comes this like new set of ideas and this, and this new, this, this new aesthetic and political like engine um, is, is exciting and valid, even if you don't know where it's going. I mean, I think the problem of hope is you have to know where you're going so that you can have hope. Like you're looking at the horizon line, you have hope you're going to reach that mountain or that star that, and like none of that really appeals to me. Um, So I, but being emotion appeals to me and feeling like this fire has been lit and like, I'm going to keep it stoked. Like that, that appeals to me. Um, I feel like I keep re- reaching for metaphors from the Trans-Siberian Railroad poem from Blaise Sondra. Um, but yeah, but that is kind of how Johannes and I function with the press and to some degree in our own thinking about writing, although I don't want to speak for him in his own writing, but yeah. it's like we pick these kind of emblems, whether they're emblematic poems or lines from the poets we've published, and we kind of come back to them as little dynamos to keep things lit and keep things moving um and blaise sandrar is obviously one of them and then from the from we we think about zarita saying that we have to have poetry that has the force of the coup um and that those kinds of maxims or lines that come out of the poetry even of you know mommy must be a, a fountain of feathers you know, like just, just all of these maxims that actually are valuable and kind of wag, battle, battle, uh, and stitched onto our battle flags, you know, in a very real, sincere way. Like we are very sincere. We are 100% sincere. And then when our press started, there were also like some folks who were being called the new sincerists and like people thought that we couldn't possibly mean what we said, but like we're as real as a heart attack, you know? Great. Um, I have a question about the other place we all live, which is the internet, <laughs> which I guess in terms of that idea of like being in motion, um, or kind of staying in motion, I, you know, I think of you both as writers who've really like 
kind of engaged and been involved with like these different modes of writing and publishing over the years, um, you know, with the collective culture blog Montevideo and being active on social media at the same time, like publishing books, right? Like which in itself, the, you know, distribution and selling of those books has changed a lot in the past 20 years. And we've all kind of weathered that in, in various ways, even the tools we use, you know, like Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, which were part of like publicizing the books or reaching readers now keep changing, you know, keep falling apart or falling away. And I think about like both the sort of push and pull of being committed to like the book as an object, which in important ways can feel so anti-internet in the like intensity of attention that it asks, (laughs) that it asks of you, but also is kind of is in this is in the same like flow of discussion, conversation of ways that people, um, ideas and things are moving. I was curious, um, just to ask kind of open-ended a question about your experiences across these modes of media, of like blogging to social media, of book publishing, of having that, you know, book publishing evolve over time, um, and kind of how you relate like your work as writers in the form of books and as makers of books to your work as writers and people who are online. Um, and if there are questions you find yourself exploring in relation to that these days in like the relationship between the print and the digital. Yeah. I mean, that became, that was never our core idea. We were, we didn't set out to be on the internet or knew what to do with it or whatever. It just, to me felt like that is just where we found, uh, Access to, that, yeah, that's where we found it. Access and mobility at the time. I mean, we're talking, if we're looking back to um, how things have developed, you know, there was a sense of kind of joy around the time we started action books. Like there was suddenly digital printing, <laughs> you know, there were things and then you could like promote things on websites and blogs. Like there was this beginning of being able to like really use these tools, right? Like these means of productions. I mean, and um, that was a little bit different from the energy we have right now, where people are sort of like exhausting themselves to try to put content out there and draw attention. And, and you know, for us, a, a, a path forward is just to stick to our, our mission and our aesthetics, which are like so clear to us that like it helps us make these kinds of choices. But on the other hand, it means that, you know, our footprint is sort of small as a press in terms of what we actually put out, right? Like four books, six books. Every once in a while we do eight books in a year and it's just like insane. I don't think we've really done that for a while. So um, sometimes we're like two books this year. So we have a really specific thing we're trying to do, which is make as much noise as possible about these authors and translators and these books, put them in conversation with people who we know are going to be interested in them. And we just like stay the course, you know, Um, and it, yeah, it would be great. It's just us, you know, it's just us. And then, very kindly, the poets Catherine Hedin and translators Catherine Hedin and Paul Cunningham are now helping us as managing editors, and we have some folks who are sort of an advisory council. But like that's it, right? Um, so we, you know, probably we, we should be learning dances and doing things on TikTok, but we can't. You know, um, we're doing what we can do. So holding the course, like letting the mission and the aesthetics and the politics feed each other, and always having that be the kind of cycle has has kept it like regenerated and, and it always makes every day it's worth doing. So I that's a, pro, that's a great thing. And we, like I said, we were never experts on the internet no, or anything like that. Clearly. But from the beginning, that's just where the conversation took place. Like that's where we saw people discussing our books. Like 
establishment journals were just not going to touch our our books, and you know, the, but our prestigious journals were not going to review them. But a lot of people on like grassroots internet started talking about them from the very beginning, and that's kind of what we're like. What is this internet? Okay, we're, people are talking about our books. Let's go there. And then you know, so that's what led us into doing things like blogging or whatever. And and Montevideo, I mean, from the very almost from the beginning, we realized there was so much amazing stuff being written that weren't were, was unpublishable in the U.S. But then we started something called Action Yes. So we had an online journal for a while. That uh, almost killed us. That, that was too much work. That was too much We couldn't do that. And then we started Montevideo, the blog, because... I think because our books weren't getting reviewed as much yeah. as we wanted them to. And so we also, thought we would write the reviews more, ourselves. I mean, more fundamentally, <laughs> more fundamentally than, than not getting reviewed, the frameworks people had for talking about poetry were, not, were just not capacious enough. We're just no. so limited. So we were like, okay, we're going to start this blog. We invited some people to have conversations with us. Basically, we write stuff about stuff we read. We introduced a lot of ideas that just were not in circulation in U.S. poetry. Part of it because those ideas came from the books we were publishing and reading and writing. Um, but that's what they were. They, th those ideas came out of our reading and writing and our translating. Uh, my ideas about my blogging about translation and then writing about translation came from just being a translator, that experience. I just want to back up what you just said and something that we sort of said later and sort of stress it. It's not just that there needs to be more things in translation. It's that the way we think about poetry has to expand from the way a lot of us, if not all of us, were taught so that we can have a vivid conversation that can have room for like contemporary U.S. writers and also soon or also La Tremont or also even Blaise Sandra, like, you know, that we can't be so trapped in our anthology thinking um, and think that we're going to learn something by just reading it from beginning to end. You learn something, but if you want to have a conversation that includes the whole world, you need to open up your model and make it bigger. And it's interesting on, so, I mean, we would like to think of social media as like this freeing place, but of course on social media, like on Twitter, there's such anthological thinking because it's always like, hey, what are you reading that's really good? And then people will repeat like a mantra, like establishment poets, and it's like, oh, and never anything foreign. It just like creates a sense of like a neo-canonical kind of thinking. So it doesn't ha the internet doesn't have to liberate. Might not liberate us, you know. So. Yeah. Oh man, those Twitter threads are brutal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the pre the pre algorithmic internet might have been a little more fun. I think it was more fun for but sure. Then you had to dig, like finding dummy choice. So to go back to my little anecdote about that, like I saw mm. these poems, and then I had to like go on all these listservs until I think I was on the woman poets listserv, and I was like, does anyone know dummy choice? Like, who is she? Where is she? Like, like Willy Wonka sort of situation, you know? Until finally Susan Schultz, who was running the was like, oh yeah, we're publishing a chapbook of that work. I can put you in touch, you know, that kind of thing. Um, needle and haystack stuff, even with the internet. But mm. maybe we're going there again. Who knows? It's all coming down. Right? I feel ready if that's true. Um, that's so great though. I mean, it makes me think a little bit about, I have, I have a question that I feel like might be related to this. It's not a very long question, I promise. <laughs> um, it's just so we, you know, one one of the other ideas that we're like we're really interested in, or question we're interested in these um, conversations is just like how do people, like what does like what does a small press, 
<laughs> you know, um, and like what 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 is the uh, what does that really mean? Like, what does that like imply? What is the the choice to um, like to to claim that like language, right? Because small press is different from like independent press or independent publishing. I think, I mean, it's like they're, they're kind of finer levels of um, disambiguation, but like, you know, I, I find myself, you know, having conversations like I don't, I won't say an independent, I won't say like indie or an independent press unless I'm speaking with someone who maybe just, you know, isn't familiar with the sort of like small presses that I'm familiar with. Right. So I'll just, so I'll say like, yeah, independent publishing. Um, But usually like, you know, personally, I'm always saying small press. I noticed, Johannes, in in transgressive circulation, you know, you're 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 frequently using the term minor, like you're saying minor literature. Um, and you know, we've explored. I feel interested in like what you know, how is small press different from independent? And then, like to me, like minor seems even like more of a more of a refinement or like more of a, a slight tweak. So I'm just. Uh, how, yeah, like, what, how do you think about that? Like, um, is that intentional to say minor like that? I'm going to leave Johannes to answer this question, but I'm also, I'm going to let you finish, but I'm also going to say <laughs> goodbye, everybody. I have to go pick up our child from art class. So I will okay. leave this interview in your good hands and in Johannes's good hands. Goodbye. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you. For sure. All right. So, yeah, I guess I'm taking that term from Deleuze and Guattari's book about Kafka. But I think, and I think that there might that might have some relevance to small presses, minor presses, because it goes away from like offic- the official, official verse culture, like what Bernstein called the, what called official verse culture, um, establishment for um, literary culture, where there is this kind of pre- where the pressures are so um, strong to comply with norms whereas i feel like in the small presses maybe this you open up to different kinds of deformations that doesn't always happen though i mean i don't want to idealize the small presses i mean small presses have their own different ways of creating hierarchies and so on maybe that's why i used the word minor to i don't remember but um johannes i have often appreciated in your writing that like that not idealizing quality. And I was thinking about, you know, small presses, which, you know, the word collaboration is very central to them. It can feel like it's both a, an ideal that I take very seriously and think a lot about. It can also feel like squishy and unclear or imperfect. Um, and there's ways that we, you know, as small press editors and publishers, we want to collaborate with our authors, but they don't, like everyone doesn't want the same thing, right? So, you know, you need to kind of answer to that in some ways. Sometimes you have authors who really would rather be on a bigger press and like, you know, you to figure out how to meet them there. Um, or, you know, that there's a kind of like imperfection or, or sense of that the thing happens around its flaws or its ways that it, that everyone couldn't always meet exactly. And I think of, um, I worked for the first like decade and change of my, you know, adult working life at a press that published primarily literature and translation. So I was often editing translations and that was mainly, you know, kind of what I was doing there. So I I was never a translator, but I was working, you know, very closely with, you know, combinations of authors and translators. Sometimes an author was deceased, all of these things. And, and, 
you know, it was striking to me that some of the books that I look back on as among the most like, like really powerful books, you know, books that I hear from people about that seem to me like they really um, happened. They really like did something, you know, those, those collaborations are very fraught, you know, they weren't like some perfect process. <laughs> Everyone wasn't like happy at that, you know, like, and so that, you know, that insight feels like hard to know what to do with or, <laughs> or something like, but it feels like part of things are, which is that there will be these moments of like coming together or working on something that won't, won't have a like necessarily like a beauty or wholeness on reflection later or something like that. And so, yeah, I guess I'm just interested to hear any thoughts you may have about collaboration and the small press. Um, and, and if translation, how translation maybe informs that or translation as a mode or a practice. Yes. Okay. I love that. Uh, I love this question. Um, oftentimes collaboration is, is super idealized and sometimes it might be ideal, you know, maybe people may, may be out there who are on the same page working together um, with the same goals and, and really compatible personalities. But I think part of what makes collaboration interesting is exactly that this kind of, I said, it's not, it's not exactly conflict, but it create it's it's a volatile space. Think, weird things happen, conflicts happen, um, things about the work itself gets ex, gets transformed through the collaboration, maybe through conflict, uh, through differing opinions. I mean, one of the enduring hallmarks of of, uh, of our literary culture is this idea that the work of art is you know the poem is perfect in itself and then the translation is where how how the poem gets lost to itself because the and that's partly because the the poem the translation opens up the poem to collaboration to different many different people having a say in it and um it, that creates movement but it also creates imbalances and and deformations and i think that i i'm actually I don't want to say like I love that aspect of collaboration because sometimes it can be just really hard and uh, a lot of work. And uh, but on the other hand, I've, I do I do appreciate that. I do appreciate that part of both that collaborative that collab collaborative element, both of trans both in translation and in publishing. It might be especially prominent in small press publishing because there isn't that same st strength of the power structure. But I think probably it happens in big presses too. I mean, and whenever people are around each other, <laughs> well, we don't have the like, you know, having like a professional structure gives things a certain like stability or like expert, you know, like it's clearer what the copy editor is doing. It's clear, but in a small press, it's more, you know, people are. They're, they're everyone's volunteering, <laughs> which means like we're not all, you know, everyone doesn't have to have set their terms or have a clear like sense of what their job is <laughs> or yeah, an agreed upon not, sense of what your job. Can, you can say, well, you were hired to do this, so you should do it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and also we're, I don't think that we're particularly good at being like business leader types. So and that's part, partly as a result, we have the, it's why we have kept the press so small and lean 
like we can work with each other. We can work with Paul and Kate. We work with some grad students, but once it gets bigger than that, if, if it, if we somehow miraculously were able to grow it, we just like, couldn't, I mean, we just, there's a certain kind of, yeah, mobility or a certain kind of, um, responsiveness of the organization when you're just a few people. Yeah. And you, you know, often, you know, those, uh, the things that have to be done to like become more professional, to have more of those resources also create like layers of accountability, right? Where, well, you might be beholden to some one or some organization now, right? Like, and I guess I'm thinking in the instance of, you know, if it should a press choose to like, you know, become a nonprofit or not, right? There's really like two sides to that. And <laughs> it's, uh, just cause there are certain benefits to being a nonprofit, right? Like there's often a lot of like terrible red tape that, I mean, obviously it can, it can just destroy, um, an organization through the administrative workload, but I think it can absolutely impact just like the actual output of it, you know, yeah. like it can, who knows if it's better or worse. I tend to think probably, <laughs> probably for the worst sometimes, you know? But yeah, depending on how good you you could put together a really exciting organization. We were turned down for not we've never been non nonprofit because we failed we failed our application <laughs> uh, very early on, and maybe partly because we just weren't capable of doing that kind of work. But yeah, I think there's probably you like you could put together an organization where it would be really dynamic and interesting and. Um, but you can also see how it would become could could be harder to make changes, harder to follow whims. I mean, all, action books is like all whims in, a, in, a, in some sense. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I mean, that's what seems fun about doing it <laughs> is that if you feel like doing something, you can do it. That's your space to do that. In fact, sometimes I think, you know, like, oh, it'd be nice, like when we first started, where it felt like we could just like, it's just, it felt more immediate and it didn't feel like we had all these books and authors involved with us, that there was something fun about that. And now sometimes I feel like, oh, I wish I could just like publish this weird book that nobody else in the world likes and, you know, shoot it out. I guess I could, but I don't know. But it's just, it, it's strange how there's a... There, there, it does seem like there's some breaking point, right? Where like, it actually, it actually becomes less sustainable, <laughs> you know, to almost have more, you know, resources at a, I mean, it, you know, it's all, it all depends on the context, I guess. But I, I just think that is a, that's like, it, it's interesting. And it is like, to me, like an argument for small, like smallness, you know what I mean? Like, um, not just like in terms of like size, but also, um, you know, choosing uh, to commit to like, Yes, like we are, this is a small press, <laughs> you know, to say, you know, it, to the exclusion maybe of, you know, what uh, independent might entail. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not saying that's what action is doing necessarily, but I, just, I think that's like a curious just sort of thing that I think all kinds of, if you're trying to like, you know, build sustainability in a pursuit that is like not lucrative, you know, um, and truly like, I think in most cases has no hope of becoming so then, you know, like what, what 
becomes sustaining, what becomes uh, something that allows you to continue. And it's, yeah, it's an ability to, to just do that because you want to do it. <laughs> you know, that's actually a lot more fortifying maybe than some money would be. I don't know. I say this as I have, you know, part-time jobs and no health insurance. So it's, <laughs> I gotta, I gotta believe that otherwise um, I'm making mistakes, but you know. I think it makes sense at least in a post-industrial setting to be suspicious of the growth mindset because you are surrounded by the other side. Um. (laughs) I think of Cleveland, I think of, now I'm spacing on his name, the guy in the 1960s who made all this mimeograph books and the beat guy, you know what I'm talking about? DA Lab DA I said that like the most nervous student. I feel like we should have it, you know, since Cleveland is involved and we're talking about regional and provinciality, maybe there's something about him that we should include in the discussion. It's definitely an iconic kind of weirdo who comes out of out of the province, this kind of figure. Mm. I once heard somebody say that he taught a workshop telepathically. <laughs> Before the internet, <laughs> before Zoom, he just started by telepathy. I don't know. That's great. Yeah, it's been nice talking to you. Thank you so much. It's really a, a pleasure. Thank you.